Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number five, we'll be talking with Jason Houston about collaborative ways of working. Jason Houston's photography and filmmaking explores how we live on the planet and with each other. He looks at issues of the environment through the lens of community, culture, and human experience. Jason has worked in over 30 countries, mostly in the developing tropics, and is always embedded in the communities he's photographing. His work helps bring to life authentic narratives that engage stakeholders, decision makers, and the public to inform conversations that can lead to social and environmental change. Jason has been published and exhibited around the world in outlets including the New York Times, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, NationalGeographic.com, Smithsonian, Science Magazine, Business Week, and WWF. Jason is a senior fellow in the International League of Conservation Photographers and a fellow at Wake Forest University's Center for Energy, Environment, and Sustainability. Can you tell me a little bit about the type of work that you do? So my work now is focused um, all around environmental themes, but always from the lens of human experience. And so I'm, you know, looking at those dynamics at the intersections of social and environmental issues and uh, almost exclusively in the developing tropics as well. Okay, interesting. And how, what, what sort of led you to that, that interest? You know, I've been, I've been doing photography for over 20 years professionally and in the earliest days, you know, it was just about my passions. It was outdoor recreation and nature and things like that. And pretty quickly kind of learned that, you know, the places that we want to go spend our time and the places that we want to go play needed additional protection. And so I got into sort of the more environmental side of things. Quickly after doing that, I realized that the way we run environmental work and the way we do our environmental activism has a huge impact on the people who live closest to and rely most intimately on those resources. And so, you know, over time, I kind of drifted more and more towards the social side of environmental work and away from the saving trees and tigers and coral reefs and stuff. Absolutely. And you're talking about sort of the human um, experience. And is that of the human experience of how we're how we're experiencing the environment and using the environment, not in an ecologically conscious way? Or is it also in terms of like environmental protection projects and sort of how that can have an adverse um, effect sometimes on uh, more indigenous communities, perhaps? It, it's all of that complexity, of right? Okay. And and yeah, and there is no sort of simple perspective on it, at least from the way I see it. I think, you know, the the challenges are that we we consume, you know, we we live in this world and we use this world and we um we rely on that. And at the same time, we sometimes take more than we need or take more than it can sustain. And even that there is sort of a question, like, are we just inherently unsustainable or are we able to to somehow find a balance. And so I'm usually trying to sort of figure that out, that side of it out. How do you, how do you envision your work having an impact? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I've always, I've even tried to think a lot about what I even call myself, you know, there's photojournalism and and a lot of times what I do is photojournalism and then there's activism photography. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes it falls into that category. Um, in the sixties, 
Cornell Kappa, who founded ICP in New York, International Center of Photography in New York, and the brother of Robert Kappa, the war photographer, coined the term concerned photographer. And I think that's the one that, that I, you know, if I have to label myself other than just a photographer, I try to lean towards that because it's kind of, it recognizes that photography has its limitations. You know, photography is not the activism itself, but we can support that change and we can support that concern and awareness and the things that we care about. So I'm, I'm, I'm not under any illusion that my work alone has a ton of impact, you know, but I think it can be part of the conversation. It can inform and deepen the conversation. It can add texture to it. It can raise awareness, you know, and I think if, if we, as photographers, if we care about that kind of stuff and that's our approach, then I think if, if we can do even that much, we're, we're doing something. But it's hard, you know, I, I love a lot of different things about it. I love the, I love the experience of being out there. I, I care for the, the places that I, that I go and photograph and work in. Um, and at the same time, sometimes you feel that you're being a little bit selfish, you know. Like I said, I travel several hundred days a year and, you know, that has its own significant impact on the environment. You know, my carbon footprint's way bigger than most of the people that I photograph, even if I'm photographing them as sort of perpetrators of environmental destruction or something, you know. So that, you know, that, that, that question of impact and that question of the change that we're making and stuff is one that I think folks doing my type of work are just always chasing. That's really interesting. As well, I guess what, what drew me to you um, as a photographer was the, the article that I read that was talking about your listening sessions, I believe you call them. And I thought that that was really interesting. Like my background is in anthropology. So I'm quite interested, I guess, in different ways of challenging representation and how we are bringing people into that process. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe that process or what led you to to start doing listening sessions. Yeah, um, is and, and that's just a, a term I coined because we needed some way to talk about it. But it, it's drawn out of visual anthropology, which, you know, you think of like anthropologists taking notes with a pen and paper. They can also take notes with the camera. And there's a different dynamic there. It's also drawn out of some concepts in participatory photography, which is also something that I'm experimenting with a bit. You know, the idea of listening sessions came from, it was a big research project, actually, that USAID was doing around the world, looking at investments in community development as a tool for improving biodiversity conservation. And so there were a lot of really, really subtle dynamics, uh, you know, in what was going on in these communities. And at the same time, a scientific report, you know, or, or a practitioner's report really doesn't require that kind of depth, at least from the photographer. You know, the reporters were going really deep and doing their interviews and stuff. But, but I still wanted a subtlety in the images that, that might even be beyond what I experienced at the time or, or recognized at the time. And so one of the things that I would do with the communities is while we were working there, I would just hold open meetings where I would share the work that day. So I'd photograph, tell people that they can come and take a look at the photographs. And then I would just listen to what they said about them. I'd listen to when they laughed. I'd listen to when they, you know, went silent. I would, I would ask them if, you know, what they thought about, about these images. And it wasn't, it wasn't to vet the images, but it was, to help me better understand what I had photographed, you know, so it's kind of reversing that, that idea that you go in and you see something and you're like, that's a photograph and you make it. It's more, I'm making photographs as I go throughout the day and, and just of the raw experience and then, and then interpreting them a little bit later, but with the help of the subjects. And that's a divide, you know, that division between the subjects and the photographers is one that a lot of photographers hold kind of sacred. You know, they want that space for it to be their own work. And, and, and I'm really, starting to come around to the idea that that it's it's truly a a one-to-one collaboration with your subjects in this kind of work. 
I feel like that speaks to almost two different levels of it because it's not, like you said, I guess, a process of editing necessarily your your selections or censoring your your work, but actually it's, it seems like it's more about you developing awareness of the place and the context. Do I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, it's to develop my own awareness and it's also to help all of us. I mean, the researchers would sit on sit in on, on these sessions too and you know, it was to help all of us process the day a little bit differently. You know, it was another way of looking back on the day and, and debriefing and discussing it. And but with the active participation of the of the subjects that we were also trying to learn from, you know. And this blended into some of the participatory photography stuff that I'm exploring now, where traditional participatory photography is about empowering the the individual with storytelling, you know, so People who are in underrepresented scenarios and are, can can tell their own story and they're empowered by that process. I think we have an opportunity now with the ubiquity of photography and the sort of low level increase in visual literacy. More and more people are looking at photographs. More and more people are comfortable with photographs. More and more people have the ability to distribute photographs. And so photographs have just become a part of our life. And <clears throat> so in addition to empowering the individuals who you give the cameras to, you can actually engage and empower the whole community around some of these issues. You know, a recent project that I did in Mozambique with a fishing community was to uh, do these listening sessions, but it was a combination of photographs that I was making and then photographs that I had helped others in the community by bringing cameras and, and showing them some basics on using the cameras had helped them to also create. And so we had this big discussion. There were five, five photographers plus me and... It was a lie, you know, it was like 50, 60 people showed up. It was a super lively discussion about some of the dynamics. And it quickly got into some of the really touchy issues that normally would just come from the top down with an environmental organization coming in and saying, you're fishing too much or you're doing this wrong or, or you know, or these guys are the heroes. But it became, it, it sort of embraced that complexity and engaged the whole community in it. And I think it, I think they really, I felt like they came away with a, a deeper understanding of, you know, why I was there and why the organization I was working with was there too. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, are you familiar with the work of Anthony Levera? I'm not. No, no. he's um, what, a Brighton-based. I want to say an an England-based um, photographer, and he does a lot of participatory work. and And he was talking about his experience of um, doing assisted self-portraiture and how he finds that like he's really really aiming for a participatory process, but at the same time, he often finds that people are looking to him for validation, and it's like the power dynamic is, is as much as he tries to subvert it, there's still an element that like he's the one providing access and he's the one with the photographic background. And there's, there's still a seeking his approval for the photographs that they're making. Do you find that as well in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's an unavoidable dynamic in photography. Uh, one of the things that, we, that I try to make really clear with the participatory stuff that I do is that it's it's not about the photograph. It's about the, and, and you know, particularly when I'm working with a, uh, you know, a, a nonprofit organization that, that is sort of a cause-driven organization in their in their field. Um, it's all about the dynamics and the conversations that can be inspired by the photography. So sometimes it's the process of the photographer being out there making the photographs and how that impacts the community. And so you kind of take that power dynamic and you slide it down the down the chain a little bit and he becomes a powerful one instead of me. 
um, or it's about the photographs that she makes and, and the conversations that those bring up within their community. And so she's the one controlling the conversation and not me as the photographer. So, you know, it's sort of, I'm still facilitating it. This still wouldn't happen if I wasn't there necessarily, but, but maybe, maybe they'll continue doing it. I, I always leave the cameras, you know, so I donate the cameras to the community and it either goes to an organization that can distribute them more broadly. So other people can do it as well, or depending on the community, it stays with the individuals. The idea being that maybe they'll continue to continue to do that. And I'm, I'm removed from that dynamic. Yeah, no, that's really uh, but interesting. It's tricky. So one really cool project where a photographer was working with shoeshine folks in um, <clears throat> in Bolivia, and was it Bolivia or Colombia? I'm, I'm spacing on some of the details, but the project was the the ultimate uh, project that they produced was this kind of magazine or zine kind of thing that was art directed by the subjects but created by the photographer. So he kind of flipped the flipped the power dynamic again and became the. Um, he he became the um, the servicer for for the client, you know, and they became the client. It was kind of a it was a cool thing. It was called Shine Heroes, and I'll get you the name, and you can put it in links later. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I'd be really interested to see that. Um, I was just wondering how long you you would generally spend with a community when you're working on like a participatory project, or or does it is it more just that it could be a project of any length that you're trying to incorporate participatory elements on, or do you sort of have like a minimum amount of time that you'd want to dedicate to to a project like that? Yeah, I, ideally, it's incorporated into a longer project, and most of my most of my assignments now are in the three to four week range, which is long for traditional photojournalism, maybe, but also pretty short for any kind of more documentary type projects. So it's kind of in the middle. The participatory part, you know, it requires a lot from the community. It requires a commitment of time and effort from the community and, and the individuals who who do it with you. And so, I usually find that about a week is best for that. But that week could also be spread out over a longer period of time. So if they're spending a week on it, it might be that they do that over the course of three or four weeks or something like that. So no, that really makes sense. Something just uh, just came to mind. It's something that I read about, um, you know, you're talking about the field of visual anthropology, and how actually in a lot of in a lot of social research, there's a big emphasis now on using photographic methods and stuff. And I think it's quite interesting how um, photographers are sort of taking advantage of those maybe more traditionally academic tools and using it for community benefit in a way, because I think that I think a lot of those things are really, really heavily used in academia. But I don't know how to say it, almost tokenistically or, or not really with the same depth or same understanding of the visual that I think a photographer can bring to that. So I think that's quite, um, quite interesting. And as well, I guess I'm wondering, do you work, do you talk with the communities very much about that, about visual language and maybe dissect sort of the visual language? Because of course, like, like you said, we're, photography is ubiquitous today. How does that come into how you understand images when you're working with these communities? It's a really, it's, that's a, you know, a, compl- a super complex and tricky question. You know, the on one hand, people see photography as a subjective tool, right? And it and it is in a sense. You know, it captures what's in front of it, and that's where that's where it can play this role in visual in research using a visual tool, where it's capturing things that you're not even aware of at the time, but because they're there, they're they're preserved and they can be analyzed later, right? Of course, like photography is totally subjective. You know, the moment, the angle, the equipment we decide to use, places we decide to be in the first place, all of those things make it entirely subjective. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it's a huge, it's a huge issue of how exactly you frame this. And I think that, you know, the way I try to do it 
um, with the community is that the photography is a, is a, is a representation of what you, of your life, of what you see and what you can bring to the conversation. And it's, it's your telling of the story. It, it depends on, it all depends on the community, obviously. You know, we worked in, I worked in one First Nations community up in Western, Northern, Northwestern Canada. And in that community, we were working directly with high school students who were very interested in photography and media. And so they, um, you know, so we went pretty deep into that. You know, we would take magazines and we would go through the magazines and we would look at photographs and we'd talk about how the story was being told and, you know, what was being represented and whether or not they felt that was accurate or how they might have done it differently. And, and then when they were doing their own photographs, we were analyzing them more in that way. Um, working with the, you know, very poor, very uneducated fishing community in Mozambique, we didn't really have those conversations, you know. It was, it was more that it's like, show me your life. You know, you said it in much more colloquial terms, right? It was, it was show me your life, show us how it is. You know, you, you get to express this. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I loved that came out of that, that particular one was this one fisherman who was completely unbound by traditional pho- photographic technique, like composition. He, he was so out of the box with composition and the way he handled the camera technically that he made some really, really interesting photographs. And, I can interpret that different than he can interpret that, but it, it led to some interesting conversations about what his experience was on these tiny little boats out in the rough ocean and stuff. So, what kinds of challenges have you encountered, and ethic, like ethical challenges, I guess, or ethical dilemmas? Maybe have you encountered when doing either more participatory projects or just listening sessions? I, I think the the ethical challenges within those projects are the same that all nonfiction photographers face, you know, um, you know, we are, we are representing people and we're making choices about the conversations that we're going to have. And we're, and we're using a tool that has a lot of power, you know, like we all know from traveling in foreign countries and trying to get through customs with a bunch of camera gear, cameras are, cameras are clearly powerful and they create a lot of anxiety and in power structures and they, and they intimidate people. And, you know, and we're bringing those tools to communities that don't necessarily, use those in the same way all the time. And so I'm aware of the fact that, that I'm empowering people in a, in a way and that's, that can be good or that can be bad, right? Power can also corrupt, but the, the ethical challenge is, you know, whether you're doing sort of your own photojournalism or these participatory projects, the ethical challenge is always the same. It's, it's, can you represent fairly? Can you do so without sacrificing the individual for the greater good and, or, or if you do sacrifice the individual, is a greater good good enough to justify that? Or you know, I, I was photographing a, a story on these uh, farming invasions in in super remote areas in the Amazon in Peru. It was for coca farming, which is the you know the plant that they use for cocaine for producing cocaine. And the farmers that were they were actually doing the invasions were you know it was a really it was a really complex story of very poor people who were you know victimized by the narco establishments and encouraged to to do these very illegal things and yet you can't go can't go into a narco camp and go photograph i mean i guess some photographers can i'm i'm too chicken to do that but but so you know so you're photographing the situation which includes these farmers who are really victims of the of the whole system and how to represent them in a way that doesn't you know completely completely implicate them as, as just perpetrators, you know, I mean, it's a classic photojournalism dynamic, but trying to do things in a way that, 
you know, balance their humanity and the need and the reasons that they're doing some of the things that they're doing that are base human needs and not greed or, or evilness or something like that. And, um, and so, you know, so if, if I learn from my own experiences doing photojournalism and then can, can help share that with people that I'm giving a camera to and remind them that they have that power too, then, you know, maybe that's the, the way uh, to handle it. Absolutely. Like, I, I'd love to know more about how you handle that conversation and how you have that conversation with people, because I think that, you know, like you said, like it's a lot of power. And, and when we're working with people with photographs, I think it's not just a simple matter, is it, of, of handing over a camera that comes with the responsibility of what it means to represent people in your own community even. So how, how do you approach that or how do you, how do you communicate that effectively in such a short period of time as well? Yeah, I don't. I don't think I do it effectively. I mean, I think I, I try to, and I think I'm trying to learn how to do it. But we so we had one situation in Mozambique. So this area of Mozambique, they do this this near shore day fishing and these little boats, and it's they're fishing for a little bit of whatever they can find down there in the reefs off the off the shore. Um, there's also a lot of diving. Mozambique is a great diving destination, and so the marine wildlife is a, is another big economic driver for this community. And there's there's definitely tension between the fish you take and the and the income that your neighbors are making off of diving and that you're making off of fishing, right? And so this came up in, in the meeting, that one of the meetings that we had where one of the f- photographers, one of the fishermen, had photographed this giant grouper that, that somebody had caught. Like groupers are very territorial. They live for a very long time. Everyone knew this grouper, including the divers, including all the other fishermen. But one fisherman decided to take it one day, and it was in the back of a truck. And, you know, on the surface, that sounds like a really simple, like, he did a bad thing kind of issue. But, um, you know, if you don't know the whole story, if you don't know if like whether or not he was had a super bad month, maybe, you know, couldn't pay for his kid's school, like what do you weigh against that grouper? You know, the fact that the photographer, the fisherman who was being critical of this had the camera, gave him more power in that conversation. So it was tricky. You know, it, it, the room got really tense, you know. Uh, we had some good local people who worked in the community who were able to help manage that conversation. Uh, so that helps a lot, you know. If, if, there are, if, if I'm only going to be there for a short period of time, I was only in that community for a month, which is a really short period of time. And so if, if that's going to be the case and having people who have worked in that community for a much longer time or having good partners who live in that community can 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 be one way of of navigating it in a way that's also appropriate to the culture of the community too because you know my my sense of right and wrong and how to have a conversation and hierarchy and authority and all those things are are different than than halfway around the world in southern africa you know i, I feel like you're you're very aware of those dynamics and i feel like that's a real skill that's developed over time but maybe not something that everybody has at the outset or is as aware of at the outset. And I wonder maybe what advice you would give to people who are going into a community that they're not familiar with, like what, how do you develop that kind of awareness or how do you approach that in a culturally sensitive and ethically sensitive way? I mean, I don't know how to develop it. I think, you know, it comes from who, how you see the world, you know, and who and who you are. I, I was asked once to do a little blurb for TripAdvisor for a travel photography thing they were doing. And it, the thing I wrote about was photographing strangers. And it was just that idea of like, 
when you photograph a stranger, how you do that and what you do is, is, is how they're going to interpret that situation. You know, if you, if you sneak a photograph and, you, and, and you're embarrassed when they catch you, then they're going to assume that you did something wrong. And if, you're, if you just, you know, are super interested in them and you celebrate them and it's part of the conversation to, uh, in, in this legitimate desire to, to learn about them, then that's how they, that's how they sense the, the dynamic and that interaction. And I think that extends to you know, just the way we need to see the world if we're, you know, why we're out there. You know, for me, I'm out there because I care about these things and I want to, as I said, raise awareness, be a part of the conversation that maybe improves the way we live on the planet and with each other and those sorts of things. You know, so my motivation is, is comes from an, a place of respect and, and curiosity and, and, and care. Um, but it's, you know, it's tricky. Like, like, language is sometimes a barrier you know i'm traveling to places where the culture is totally foreign you know i'm not naive that it's a selfish pursuit as well you know even if i come off as being really sensitive to to people i have to work at that you know i have to work at being you know recognizing that i that i'm from the outside and i'm a drop in the bucket in their life you know like you said you were talking about your motivation like your your motivation isn't necessarily to go and win awards yet you're saying that there's something inherently selfish about your practice as well. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that or how that, how you view that? I mean, my photography has been criticized for being too much for the, for the client or the partner. And in most cases for me, almost all cases for me, that means it's an NGO that's working in one of these issues. Right. And so, and when I've been in environments, you know, like prestigious publications or exhibitions or things like that, where, your personal vision is is primary. You know, my work has been criticized for not being my own. You know, it's being derivative or in service to these organizations. And, you know, and, and at times that can be really crushing because the reason that I'm out there doing it is because I love everything about photography. I love I love thinking about it. I love the process of doing it. I love the the experiences that it gives me. I love the the output, the 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 production of, of the photography. I love looking at what I what I've created, you know, and that's all very self-centered, you know. But if that's done in service to, you know, to these other reasons that I do it, this idea that it's important and that awareness matters and, and those sorts of things, then, you know, it's just a big mix of, it's a mix of motivations. And so I try to, I try to recognize that when I'm out photographing and, and, you know, and the simplest thing is what, you know, all photojournalists have to do is make sure that you're making the photograph from a place of, you know, understanding what's important and being truthful and being honest about the scenario and not just making a, an amazing, beautiful photograph. You know, it's, it's really easy for someone's facial expressions to flip on a dime and they can go from looking noble to looking beat down just because they sneeze or something like that, right? And, and, that, and that classic sort of beat down victim photograph in photojournalism is, is you know, is too prevalent. And so, <clears throat> and yet that's the one that wins awards a lot of times. And I'm not bitter about it, that I don't, I don't really enter awards and that sort of thing. But, but I am sensitive to the fact that that's not always an honest interpretation and that we have to be careful of that, you know. And in, but, you know, in fairness to so many colleagues that I admire and learn from and try to emulate and everything, you know, there's a lot of, I'd say most, most photojournalists and folks out there doing that work are doing it with good intentions, even the ones who are winning the, the big awards, they're just, you know, better at balancing those things than I am or something. So. <laughs> no, I, I feel like what, what you said about, you know, enjoying the process as well of looking back at your own work. And I, in my own work, I feel like I often worry or I feel, I don't want it to be navel gazing. And so I feel like what you're saying about 
about knowing that you're contributing to something bigger, a bigger dialogue. I can understand that, that, how that might be reassuring. One of of my favorite writers is Ryszard Kapczynski. He was a Polish journalist in the, that worked in the forties and the fifties. I think he died in the late eighties, early nineties, but he worked in Southern Africa or worked in sub-Saharan Africa throughout the fifties and the collapse of colonialism and has some, some amazing work that um, is, I think, brilliant, but also controversial sort of take on, on how he does journalism. But he had one of the the very last books published in his name was a series of lectures that he had given um, on the concept of the other. So it's Ruzhard Kapczynski, and the, the title of the book is The Other, and it's a collection of lectures that he had given about these ideas of representation and these ideas of, you know, can we appropriately represent those who are, you know, so exotic to us and those who are the others, you know, to our reality. It's a pretty, pretty challenging sub- subject. Absolutely. How do, you, how do you sort of feel about that for your own practice? This is, again, that balance of the, the selfish motivations and the, and the, you know, the awareness of, of what my role is. Um, you know, from a selfish perspective, I love the diversity of experiences. You know, I love learning about new things. I love being in these uncertain, unfamiliar environments and seeing things that challenge, you know, the way I, the way I view reality and all of that. The responsibility that I have to them, given what I've chosen to do as a career, is to, to transcend that and represent them as human beings, you know. And so the thing I try to do all the time is to find that commonality, right? Find the, find those common base human motivations that, that are the way we live and then, and then put those in that context. So you kind of try to embrace both the diversity and the familiarity at the same time. You know, so it's a, sometimes it's a little less dramatic and it's a little more pedestrian and a little more daily life, but at the same time, like if you can then contextualize it in the, you know, and I try to contextualize it by the work and the agenda that my work has, you know, maybe that brings people both sides of it. I don't know. I hope. I feel like what you're saying really reminds me of a quote about anthropology. See, see if I can if I can quote it correctly. But it was something about how um, the point of anthropology is to make the foreign familiar and the familiar foreign. <laughs> and I feel like that's sort yeah. of that's how I approach my work as an anthropologist, but also how I approach my work as a photographer. And I feel like that's sort of the same thing that you're saying. William Carlos Williams had a poem from the 60s that the last line is, it's difficult to get the news from poetry, yet men die every day for lack of what is found there. And that's been, that's been my mantra, which is, I think in some ways it's similar, right? It's this idea that we see the news or we see the sort of the surface of what, what information we need as this, as one thing. And yet it's that interpretation and that subtlety and those things that move us emotionally that, that really matter. Yeah, absolutely. Could you tell me, is there anything that you've experienced uh, in your practice as a photographer that you've looked back on and maybe wish that you did differently? Or do you feel very comfortable, I guess, from the start with how you've, how you've, not not saying that, you know, you have anything to look back (laughs) and regret on, but like, you know what I mean? No, I don't, I don't, you know, I'm constantly iterating and learning and being very frustrated by where I'm at. I think, you know, a few years ago, I talked about that realization of, photographing for other people and not necessarily for myself. And I think when I talked about it before, I talked about it in the context of that being a, a selfish pursuit. But I think in the in, in reflecting on uh, William's poem that I just cited, that's actually necessary to have that individual vision, right? And, and, and our effectiveness is what we do is, is a balance of those things that we do for ourselves that make us special or make us different than the, the next photographer versus the things that we do that, that sort of keep us honest and I wish I had understood that dynamic from the beginning. I wish I was constantly struggling with that dynamic. You know, I had some some good friends who 
we were at a photo event for the International League of Conservation Photographers in Washington, D.C., and good friends, Karen and Jasper, we got into a conversation that ended up like just basically tearing apart my work. And it was devastating, you know, but at the same time, it was completely reinvigorating for making sure that what I'm doing is, you know, is super intentional, making sure that what I'm doing is based on what I really want to be doing and my passion. And then, and then making sure, you know, because for me, that cause and that agenda is also part of the work, making sure that then somehow I figure out how to, how to combine those two things, you know, and I've been doing this for, you know, too many years to have just figured that out, you know, a few years ago, but, you know, so that, that's one thing I wish that I had started earlier. Can you give an example of an ethical dilemma that you have encountered in your work or the types of ethical dilemmas that you encounter in your work and sort of how you navigate that or how you, you you've done, you've done that a wee bit I, already, of course, with the example from Mozambique, but I wonder if there's anything else that comes to mind. Yeah. I mean, I think again, it's just the, you know, I work in, I work in a, in a niche it's, and it really is a tiny little niche of this intersection between social and environmental issues and, you know, regionally specific, it's focused on the developing tropics and that sort of specialty or specialization has been part of sort of how I've built what I've done. You know, those stories are incredibly, incredibly complex. You know, the, the most of those natural resources come from those areas in the tropics and they get used by people in the, you know, in the northern hemisphere up in the north. And, and then, you know, and there's a whole chain of events that leads to the way those things happen. And, and, and yet when we go in to photograph these things, we go into the forests that are being cut and we photograph the people who are cutting the forests. Um, you know, or we go to the, the coast that's being overfished and we photograph the people doing the fishing. And so... And yet, no, you know, no one wants to see a photograph of a distribution center or a, you know, a fish storage facility someplace, or, you know, whatever. Um, and so the the challenge is to do what we're charged to do as photographers, which is make photographs that are remotely interesting and also to fairly represent the complexity of those scenarios so that we're not just, you know, accusing and the the one link at the end of the chain for something that we're actually, in most cases, driving. You know, we recently did a, a project down in Peru. Also, I work a lot in Peru, but I did a project down in Peru on the gold mining down there. And in February of 2019, the military went in and shut down 40,000 hectares of, of illegal gold mining and just outside of one of the big jungle center cities. And, you know, that's another one of those issues that looks really, really black and white. You know, you go from some of the most biodiverse forest in the world to a desert of polluted sand dunes and leftover junk from the mining operations. And there were, you know, an informal community of 30,000 people. There were 6,000 active miners, um, you know, and then all the other support, the restaurants and the supplies and the, the brothels and all of the other things that come along with that. And, um, you know, and it's it's hard to figure out how to photograph the fact that the gold that's coming out of there is going into the iPhone or the computer that we're talking on right now, you know. Like those chain of events, you can photograph that des- destruction, then you can say, and this is because of your iPhone, but that doesn't have nearly the impact of if you figure out how to how to actually photograph that. And it's more than my responsibility to have the impact. It's not fair to the people who are on the, you know, the end of that who need to be represented in a way that that ultimately means we can help them, you know, not just not just put them in jail or whatever, you know. You know, I guess part of that challenge isn't only to be able to photograph that in a way that's visually interesting, 
but also probably um, just purely access. Like we don't, you know, it's so much harder to get access to the people in power. You know, it's much easier to get access <laughs> to the people not in power. And um, it reminds me also, sorry, I keep referencing anthropology. This is going to turn into an anthropology podcast before I'm done. But <laughs> Great. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it reminds me a lot of the concept of studying up, you know, the concept that, you know, don't focus on if I, as an anthropologist, went and did a bunch of research in a underprivileged community, I'm providing data to the people who are oppressing them, you know? So instead of studying them, I should be studying the power structure that is, you know, leading to the oppression of a group of people. Or so, But it is very hard to do, I think, in photography. I think maybe that is one of the challenges maybe in how we shift how we value photographs um, and what we value in a photograph. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I did another, another project in Peru on, on mining, uh, and this was on legitimate mining. So it was the big pit mines up in the Andes and stuff like that. Um, entirely different process of trying to get access. You know, we, I was this, the, both of these were, were traditional journalistic projects. And so, um, you know, we were doing everything right. We were getting permission, you know, to go to places where, where we needed to, um, we were talking to the officials as well as the communities and all of those things. And it was, yeah, um, so much less access than when you're dealing with the, you know, illegal, illegitimate, unregulated mining down in the jungle, um, where, you know, the, the challenges to access there are just your own safety. You know, you're dealing with outlaws and wildcat miners and you can, you know, you do have to worry about your own safety, but, but totally different than simply not being able to get to something because there's a giant wall in front of you, you know? So, and, it, and, and you're right. It, 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 un, it's an unbalanced representation, you know, because the destruction of those mines and the amount of product that those mines in the, in the high Andes are producing is far greater than, than what's happening down in the jungle. And it's a lot, a lot of times for the same kind of reasons. And yet the one that's more dramatic and easier, easier to access is the, the illegal guys down below. So tried to do both, but it's easier to make, easier to make interesting photographs of the ones you can photograph. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. That's definitely, um, that's an important challenge. I think we don't really think too much about. I just wonder what, what is photography ethics for you? How would you define that? Or what does it mean to you to be an ethical photographer? Yeah. Trying to be honest about my experience and trying to represent people, you know, as, as human beings, you know, um, I think I have a responsibility given the kind of subject matter that I deal with. I have a responsibility to understand the dynamics as well as I possibly can. And even in some cases to bring, you know, more expertise on the subject matter to the conversation than, than the organizations that might be hiring me. And that's happened before, you know, so it really just comes down to some of those super basic tenets of journalism, even to, you know, being honest and truthful. How do you gain awareness of where you're photographing? What is your process for that? Just a lot of research. Um, you know, I talk to I talk to people who who work there from different perspectives. They do as much research on it as I can. I've got you know piles of Google alerts coming into my inbox every day. Um, even when I'm not working on a project, if I know it's something that I'm coming back to, like resource extraction in the Amazon, I've got all the you know, I'm constantly looking up that stuff whenever I get the opportunity to, not just when I'm preparing for a project. And then also kind of the direct experience. You know, one thing that I've tried to do is define my value as being someone who's, you know, 
a decent enough photographer, but but more importantly, understands the subject matter and the issues in a way that uh, allows me to really contribute to the conversation, not just make interesting photographs that contribute to the conversation. And so um, I take the extra time when I'm in the field to work with the writers and talk with them on a regular basis or talk with the organizations or be a part of the research and, and exploration of, of what the issues are and, and that sort of thing. And then, and then hopefully that, that, that familiarity, that experience and that specialization is part of the value that I bring to a project. No, that's really yeah. interesting. I think that that's something that's, that it comes up a lot when I when I talk to people is sort of the, the importance of research, but also of time. And it seems like time is something that is very tricky because it's very important, but we're always short on it. And especially when we're, I think, hired by certain organizations or especially maybe media outlets, you know, we aren't given the time, uh, we aren't budgeted for the time that, that we really need to, to invest in that understanding and that research. As a photographer, you have to be there, right? Like you have to, like your time is, is one-to-one, you're, you're not scalable. But yeah, there's tremendous value in putting in the amount of time that's necessary to, to deepen the work to the point where it, it has the impact that you want. And so so I do, I do a couple of different things. One is I find that it's often, you know, because of the kind of places that I work, it's fairly cheap to stay there. And so a lot of times I'll put my own time in on, on a project, either just delivering more, you know, I, I tend to work on a project basis instead of a day rate or kind of basis. And so I can, I can look at a project and I can say this one really neat, you know, they have a budget for the equivalent of what someone might get for two weeks on a day rate, I'm going to put in three because it's only going to cost me an extra hundred bucks to stay there for another week, you know, and it's worth it to me to do that. And that's an investment in my experience and, and the future. So, yeah, I think you just have to have to do that. I also, I also work really hard to, to have repeat clients. So clients that, that I work with on similar subject matter over and over again. Um, so that, that, that front end time of, of ramping up and learning the issues and, and, becoming familiar with things is less and I can spend more time on the actual production of, of content. And, but yeah, I mean, we're not scalable and that's a, that's a, that's always going to be sort of a liability and a tricky thing with photography. You said a little bit about the difference between, um, photojournalism and sort of activism as a photographer and how you sort of settle on the role of concerned photographer. And I just thought it made me think as well of the idea of solutions journalism. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I feel like that's almost another term that can be thrown into that bucket. I think they, yeah, I think they do mean different things, but they're on the same spectrum, right? Like, so in that context, I would think of journalism as the raw information that need that we need in order to be a functioning democracy. Solutions journalism is recognizing that there's a tendency within journalism to focus on areas of need and issues and impacts. And we also need to understand what's what has been done or what is being done to successfully mitigate some of that those negative things, right? And that's the solutions journalism. And World Press Photo has has recently published some great articles on this. So it's a great resource for understanding solutions journalism in a non-propaganda way. All the way on the other end of the spectrum, you know, advocacy photography can can push into propaganda. You know, it can be defined by the agenda of the organization or the the campaign that it's that it's serving. And and that means that it's not always a fully honest or a complete look at at a story. And so that means also not entirely honest if you want to look at it that way. 
uh, when I think of concern photography, I think it's a, and, and this is the way it was defined back when the term was coined, is that it's a recognition that that we do these things because we recognize need and we care about change, and yet we're also trying to do it in a in a way that is, you know, fully upheld with journalistic integrity and 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 has that kind of that kind of clarity and a structure that the that the viewers can can rely on when they're looking at the images, you know. And so I use that term rather than, you know, rather than trying to coin a new one because it has that history and it has that history that, that when, if I use that and, and someone understands what it means and they can have some sense of what my intentions were when I was producing the work. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photo Ethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode number five are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Tara Pixley on critical media production.